You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Have you ever wondered, what is God's plan for my life? I know so many people struggle and wrestle with this question of calling and purpose. As we looked at in Ephesians chapter 2, we know that there are good works that we were created for in Christ Jesus, but we don't always know what those good works are. And then there are other times that feel like dry seasons in our spiritual walk or even seasons of trial and suffering. And it may ask us, cause us to ask God the question, where is God in all of this? What is the plan? And so often we find ourselves wanting what I call a Google Maps God. We want God to work like Google Maps. We want to tell him where we want to go, and we want him to give us step-by-step instructions, day-by-day, turn left, turn right, go straight. And if we detour from God's plan, we want God to recalculate around our own desires. But the reality is God doesn't work like that. And in fact, I'm not so sure God's plan for our lives work like that. So today, really, we're wrestling with this idea of How do we know which direction we go in life? Where do we fit into this world? Maybe you've asked questions like, where do I go to college? Or should I go to college? Or who should I marry? Or should I get married? Sometimes we even are left asking questions like, what do I have for breakfast? And I know that's a simple example. And yet some people get really worked up around trying to fit into God's plan for their lives. And so today what I want to do is I actually want to zoom out And I think the key to understanding where we fit into the world is actually by zooming out instead of being hyper-focused on our own lives to actually look at what God is doing in the world around us. You could say the key to finding your place in the world is actually seeing God's plan for the world, to seeing God's plan overall. And that's actually what we see Paul doing in Ephesians chapter 3, which is our teaching text for today. So if you have a Bible, open to the book of Ephesians, and let's go ahead and jump into Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written Briefly, So what we see here is a really interesting, almost digression from Paul. He, he's going to be praying near the end of Ephesians chapter 3, and it sounds like he's about to start off into a prayer, you know. But then he almost uh, enters into, but have you heard of me? And, and remember, he's writing to the church in Ephesus where he spent three years, and there are many people in the church who knew him and, and probably others who joined the church since that point in time, since he was there last, who don't know him. And he's likely writing this as a circular letter. So he's writing to people who haven't necessarily heard about him. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to talk about his own calling and the role that he specifically plays in God's kingdom. But in our text today, we see this word three times, and it first shows up here. It's this word mystery. Mystery. And and I don't know what comes to mind when you think of mystery, uh, the mysteries that we read in novels or see on TV, but this is actually the, the proper definition of how Paul is using the word mystery. It is knowledge that must be revealed to be known. Knowledge that must be revealed to be known. So right here, we have our visual for today, and it's covered. 
it's veiled in this cloth. To you, I know exactly what's under here, but to you, it is a mystery. And when Paul uses this word mystery, we have to remember that he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and there are so many different mystery cults, mystery religions. It's, it's actually where this word mystic comes from. And in fact, the cult of Artemis was a mystery cult. And how people would have used that word is you had to be high up within an organization to know all the secrets. You had to be the initiated if you wanted to understand the information. And that's not how Paul is using this word at all. In fact, he's taking this common word mystery, musterion in Greek, and he's infusing it with new meaning to refer to Christ. We can say it like this. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know the mystery of Christ. Paul isn't saying that, you know, if, if you're just, you know, now hearing the gospel or you haven't gone to church for very long, it's always going to, Jesus is always going to be a mystery to you. In fact, he's making the exact opposite point be, because a mystery is knowledge that must be revealed to be made known. And what Paul is saying is Christ has been revealed. So he's making the opposite point. He's not saying that there are you know, secrets that you have to be high up within Christianity to know. What he's saying is the gospel and who Jesus is has actually been revealed from heaven to us. And he's really referring back to specifically how he got to know who Jesus was. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9. This is Paul on the road to Damascus where he actually met the resurrected Christ. This is significant because formerly Paul was persecuting Christians. He hated Christians. And then all of a sudden he had this actual encounter with the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, his eyes were physically blinded. You might remember this story. And then after three days of prayer and fasting, he actually had the veil uh, pulled back from his eyes so he could see physically again. But more significantly, he had the veil pulled back from his heart. And spiritually, he actually understood that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we have to remember back that this idea of the mystery of who Christ is, it was a mystery for Paul until Jesus Christ himself revealed that to him. And so what Paul is doing here, he's, he's saying, I want to reveal what I've been, what's been revealed to me, to you. I, I'm just trying to do my part to reveal what I know about Jesus Christ to you, And he's referring not just specifically to the personal salvation, although that is a significant aspect of the gospel. What he's referring to is he's referring to, you want to see what's underneath our, our, our curtain of the day? What he's referring to is the household of God. Now, if you watched last week's message, you, this might look familiar because this is, this is literally the, the visual we used last week. And the reason why I'm reusing the same visual, the household of God, is that's actually specifically what Paul is referring back to. At the end of verse 3 where he says, as I have just written briefly, it's like an email where you just made a point, you would say something like, see above, right? And that's what he's saying. He's like, you want to know the mystery of Christ? Look at what Jesus has done. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility, and he's reconciled people, not just with God, but he's also reconciled people with one another, Jews and Gentiles, so that you have this new humanity, when Paul talks about his role to play as a steward of the grace of God, that word steward is oikonomia, that's a household manager, and it actually comes from the root word oikos, which is a Greek yogurt 
uh, brand if you want to buy Greek yogurt, but it literally means house or household. It's the word that Paul uses to describe what we are as the church. And so really what Paul is doing is he has a play on words where he's saying, we are the oikos, and I, Paul, am the oikonomia. I am the, the steward of the grace. So, so within the church, within the household of God, he's saying, I have a unique role to play. And that unique role is to help people understand that the gospel is not just a personal salvation. It is a reconciliation within creation. It's a reconciliation, it's a, it's a tearing down of the dividing walls, and it is a unity within the church. And so Paul has a clear sense, we could say, of his calling. He knows what God's plan is for his life, and what that does is it actually helps him not panic when he finds himself, like he says in Ephesians 3.1, in chains. He himself is in prison when he's writing the letter to the church in Ephesus. And notice this language. He says he's a prisoner not of Caesar, who literally, you know, Caesar, it would be under his authority that he would be in prison. He's not a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. What's significant is if he is in house arrest in Rome, which is one of the options for where he might be when he's writing this letter, if you trace that all the way back, those accusations that ended up landing him in house arrest, you can read about this in, in the later chapters of the book of Acts, but in Acts 21 is actually because he was associating with a Gentile and that got him into trouble. But even if it's not specifically under house arrest in Rome, that, that Paul views his ministry to the Gentiles as the very thing that has landed him in prison. So imagine this. Paul views he's got this calling. He's going to plant churches. He's going to preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, he's in prison. And in that moment, I don't know what you would do, but what I would often do in something like that is I would get discouraged. And I would say, well, I can't preach on Sundays anymore, so I guess you know, ministry's over, at least for this season of my life. I'm in prison. What else can I do? Right? We kind of have our own sob stories. But what Paul does is he's not so hyper-focused on God's you know, individual plan for his life. He's looking at what is God trying to do as a whole. He has this, this grander vision for actually joining what God is doing. And so he says, well, I can't speak to crowds, and I can't plant churches right now, but you know what I can do? I can write letters. And so while Paul is in prison, he actually writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so if, if Paul did not have this, this vision of joining what God is doing, regardless of his circumstances, even in a dire situation, the Bible would be four books shorter. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to, to learn from his example as a steward of the grace, of, of the gifts that God has given him. He's not shaken through suffering. He, he is not shaken through trial and turmoil. He actually is always looking for how he can still accomplish his role as a steward of the grace that is given to him. And that's something we can learn. Instead of trying to be hyper-focused on our individual lives and you know, self-actualization and, and fulfilling our own personal desires and calling in this world, what if we looked at our lives as trying to further the mission of God? And even in difficult situations, we would be able to find ways to do that. Let's continue through our text in Ephesians 3, verse 4. When you read this, 
you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery, right? It's the household of God and what God is doing to create a new humanity. Here, what Paul says is so significant for us. He says, when you read this, he's referring to when you read this letter, it's the Greek word anagnosko. It's when, when the message and the knowledge of the letter is known in your midst, you're going to understand the mystery of Christ deeper. That's significant because for us, you know, we kind of take reading for granted. In fact, we have more information just, just, just come across our screens on a phone than people had access to within their entire lives, right? And so we, we are inundated with information. But we have to remember many of the people in the audience in the early church, they would have been illiterate. They would not have been able to read. And in fact, that, that parchment was so expensive. It was so expensive to produce a letter or a book even that many people would never, you know, read one of those. And so when he says anagnosko, he's talking about the public reading of scripture. This is why the public reading of scripture in the church was such an essential thing because it was one of the few times each week that people would actually encounter the word of God. And so what Paul has in mind is he fully expects that the reading of this letter, that w- which would be circulated throughout Asia Minor, would actually change people's understanding and knowledge of the gospel, that they would receive his insight into the mystery of Christ. Here's what that means for us. Read your Bible to know Jesus. We often take reading the Bible for granted. You, can, you don't even have to have a paper Bible. You can have an app. You can do it online. You, you know, paper Bibles are just you know, a dime a dozen in America, right? It, it's the, been the best-selling book since Gutenberg invented the printing press in the mid-1400s. And that really revolutionized things. And it's such a blessing, but we take that blessing for granted. And I would just challenge you, if you do not have a Bible reading plan that you're doing right now, you need one. If, you, if you're not consistent, if you don't have a time each day where you're getting into God's word, you need one. You need, a, you need a plan to read the Bible. We cannot take God's word for granted because when we read these words, we actually understand the gospel deeper. We, we, we perceive the insights into the mystery of Christ and we read to know Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people read the Bible. Some people read the Bible you know, to feel like they accomplished something or to learn a new insight. And so often we are satisfied with simply gaining a new insight from Scripture. But really, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that relationship with Jesus. And so we read, we can say, for transformation by the Holy Spirit, not just information. It's good to learn facts. It's good to learn details about Scripture. But we need to read in order to sit at Jesus' feet, listen to his teachings, and actually to know him. And so there's power that comes when we read the Bible. Another point that Paul is making here in these last few verses is that the gospel marks an end of an era. Did you catch that? He said that the mystery of Christ, and this is actually the reason why he's calling it a mystery, this household of God that God is creating. The reason why it's a mystery is it was totally unexpected for so many people who were already a part of uh, our, the Jewish faith. 
that they didn't expect the way that Jesus would usher in the new kingdom. And so there's this old era, the old covenant, which has come to an end, and we are now in a new covenant in Christ. And specifically, I think there's four main things that would be considered surprises if somebody was a Jew uh, when Jesus came and did his public ministry. The first one, the first surprise, is Christ's death on the cross. It's Christ's death on the cross. I think this is one of the reasons why so many of the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law, they completely missed that Jesus was the Son of God because they were expecting a Daniel 7 Son of Man. That's a Son of Man who comes with lightning bolts and he's riding on clouds and he's powerful and he was going to, you know, set up this, this physical kingdom on earth and overthrow the Romans. That's what many people were expecting. But Jesus came humbly. He came and he did ministry to the sick and the poor and the outcasts. And in fact, he would die on a cross. And that was kind of unthinkable. Of course, it makes sense. You read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. So there are prophecies where where they could have looked at and, and understood. But this would have been a total surprise for what people were expecting out of the Messiah. The second surprise is the end of the Mosaic law. We talked about this a little bit last week. You know, hadn't God given the law? There are 613 commandments in the Old Covenant, and how could you be holy without those kind of things, right? People couldn't wrap their minds around that, and yet Jesus, Jesus came, and he created a brand new covenant, a brand new way for us to be in relationship with God that is not mediated by following the law. It's mediated through the atoning work that he has done in our place and on our behalf through his death his burial, and his resurrection. And so we have this opportunity to have this open pathway and an open relationship directly to our Heavenly Father. And that's really amazing. And again, this would have been a total surprise for many Jews. I mean, Jesus, he summarized the law and the prophets by saying, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we still have commands, don't get me wrong. We still have laws to follow as God's people. We have a kingdom, we have the teachings of Jesus. And many of the commands from the old covenant were actually reaffirmed and reiterated in the New Testament. And yet we are not bound by the Mosaic law. We are under a brand new covenant. The third surprise would have been God's presence in the Holy Spirit. You know, in a Jewish thought, if you wanted to be close to God's presence, being at the temple was the closest you were ever going to get because that's where God's presence was, in the Holy of Holies. And even the priests weren't all allowed to go in the Holy of Holies, right? There there was once a year, you know, a priest would be able to to enter in and, and play that role as the mediator. And yet for people, you know, their place of worship, that was where God was confined. You know, kind of God was in a box for them. And so it would have been unimaginable. Like, how could you get much closer to God? And yet with the ushering in of the church age, Jesus said he was going to send his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And so that's the closest that that we could imagine. Like, it's so unexpected and surprising that God would actually live within us. And we are called the household of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. And we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is so. This is one of the, the mysteries of the things that was surprising about the gospel. And then the fourth, the final thing that would have been surprising, and this is really Paul's main point, is the full equality within the church. The full equality within the church. Sure, you know, Jews would have known the Old Testament. They would have known the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that God's ultimate plan was to bless the whole earth, right? They knew that there was going to be a deliverance from more than just people within uh, the, the people of Israel. And yet, they maybe didn't quite expect how equal the Jews and the Gentiles were going to be. 
you know, would Jews and Gentiles really be on equal footing or would Gentiles always kind of be a second class or a second rate citizen in God's kingdom? And that is the most surprising thing for many of the people within the early church. And in fact, Paul emphasizes this fourth point with these three different ways that he describes the Gentile and the Jewish, you know, equality within the church. Uh, Gentiles are fellow heirs, he says. That means we all have the same inheritance. We all have the same heavenly home. We all have the same blessings from God. And this was huge to think about. Now, now think about this. It makes me remember a parable of Jesus, the parable of the vineyard workers from Matthew chapter 20. Here's a summary of that, where Jesus tells a parable. And he talks about, you know, there's a guy who, who needs people to work in his vineyard. And so he goes and gets day laborers. And some people he hires at the very beginning of the day. And then every hour he goes back and he gets more and more laborers until finally there's a few laborers who are left who need a job for the day. And the master goes and he, he gets those guys and they only work like an hour of the day. And then it comes time to pay everyone. And when the master goes to pay everyone, he pays everyone a denarius, which is a single day's worth of wages. Now, for the first people, they were blessed because they didn't work a whole day. They worked, you know, an hour of the day. But then the people who worked all day, they got the same pay as the ones who worked only an hour, right? And that seems, it has this kind of knee-jerk reaction. So, so imagine the Gentiles who've just come into the church, and then you have the Jews who would say, we've been here all along, right? This is what Jesus says is the master's response in Matthew 20, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This is the aha moment of the parable. Because the reality is, it's not that the master paid anyone unfairly. You know, the wage was a denarius, right? For everyone. And it was actually his generosity towards those latecomers. We could say it was, it's God's generosity to the Gentiles to have them be fully equal and, and receive the same inheritance as the Jews. And we should not begrudge God for his generosity. We should be grateful for God's generosity, for God's unexpected grace. The second thing that Paul emphasizes about the full equality within the church is the same body. That means we are attached to Christ and one another. When Paul says that we are all part of the same body, he actually creates a brand new Greek word. I love it when Paul does this. Uh, It's the Greek word susoma. Uh, And and it's a combination of two words, soon, which means with, and body, which means, or soma, which means body. So susoma. And it's, we are a, a body with one another. It's not enough for Paul to just say, we're all one body. He's like, we are a body with one another. That means you can't, it's impossible to be attached to Jesus without simultaneously being attached to his body, without being attached to the church. The two go hand in hand. This is why this this metaphor, this household metaphor is so important. You cannot be built on a foundation of Jesus Christ and not simultaneously be built together with other followers of Jesus. I mean, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, and you're going to be seated next to people from past, present, and future, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people who look like you, people who don't look like you. So we might as well start being that kind of family right here and right now. That's the implication for us to understand what it means to be the same body. And then the third thing that Paul says to emphasize this full equality is we are partakers of the promise. We're all partakers of the promises of God. That means God will do what he has said. All the promises of God, promises of hope 
and healing, promises of forgiveness, promises of salvation, promises of peace. All of the promises of God are available to everyone who is within the body of Christ. See, it took people like Peter around eight years to really get this. So when Paul says this is totally unexpected, people didn't see it coming, and yet it was revealed to the apostles and the prophets, he's saying it's not just him. He's saying don't just take my word for it. This has been revealed to all the leaders of the early church, the apostles and to the prophets by the Holy Spirit. And a great example of this is Acts chapter 10. This is about eight years after Pentecost and Sunday where, where the, you know, the church really began and the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter, who's functionally leading the early church, he had to receive direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. He had a dream where he, he was told by God three times that he didn't have to keep the same dietary laws and dietary restrictions, right? That was one of the surprising things. Really? The Mosaic law, those customs, those traditions, they've come to an end, right? So, so he was told by God, you, you can eat bacon, right? You can eat shrimp. You can eat some of these kind of things. And then he was also told, uh, there was a guy who knocked on the door, and it was a Gentile, a Roman centurion, uh, who was named Cornelius, who wanted to hear the gospel. And, and Peter preached to Cornelius, and his entire household was baptized, and the Holy Spirit came powerfully in that moment. And yet we can be a little bit surprised. Like, it took eight years for them to get that, right? This, th- that's how surprising this kind of, you know, revolutionary reconciliation that God does in the gospel is. And then Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus decades after that moment. And the church is still wrestling and struggling. And so that's what Paul means when he says, I've had this revealed to me, the other apostles, the prophets, they've had this revealed to them. And I'm just trying to share my revelation to demystify, to take the veil off of this beautiful mystery of Christ, which is not just the reconciliation personally between you and God, but the corporate reconciliation between one another. So for you today, Maybe you find yourself in a position of pre-faith where you have not yet put your faith in Jesus. I don't believe it's an accident that you are watching this teaching right now. And, And I would just say to you, all of the promises of God, all of the blessings, the generosity, being a part of the body of Christ, it is only available, as Paul says specifically here at the end, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the way that we become part of this new humanity. It is in Christ Jesus, by putting your faith in Jesus, trusting the work he did on your behalf, and trusting him as your Lord and Savior. And that's really through the good news and the message of the gospel. So today, I hope that you've experienced, uh, I hope that the veil has been uncovered from your eyes so that you could see and know the truth of the gospel. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been working even in your heart during these last few minutes. And I just want to invite you today to respond to the gospel by praying and asking God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And I also want to challenge you to take that step of baptism. That is the ceremony. It is the step of faith that Jesus asked us to take for those who want to commit their lives to following him. You can find out more information about baptism at hillcityboise.org baptism. But for you, maybe you've made that step of faith. You are a follower of Jesus. You are in and you are experiencing those blessings in Christ. Two practices for us to focus on today. The first one is to share the mystery of Christ with someone. Share the mystery of Christ with someone who doesn't know it. I think this this word mystery is helpful for us. Again, not that you have to be Sherlock Holmes, not that you have to figure it out or deduce who Jesus is. It has clearly been revealed from heaven to us. And yet we can just be honest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says the cross of Christ is foolishness to the rest of the world. 
To those, to those who, who, who don't have the, the spirit in their lives already, who don't know scripture, the cross of Christ is foolishness to them. And you can be a part of demystifying the mystery of, the, of Christ to someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. And you can do that simply by sharing your story. You don't have to be a theological expert. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't have to be you know, a preacher necessarily to preach the gospel. So I would just say to you, share your story. I mean, think about what convinced you. What was it that, that connected the dots for you? And just share your story of faith. If, if, if that thing, if that person or, or that scripture verse or that you know, experience was enough to, to help you understand the mystery of Christ, then it's enough. It's powerful enough to help someone else as well. And so I would just say to all of us, man, that is really the grace that God has given to us to go out and to share the good news of the gospel to everyone that we know. Think of your friends, your family members, and, and pray for them. You know, there's only a few things that can really change someone's mind about Jesus. And one of the most powerful things is the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. So pray for them. Pray that God would change their mind and draw them to himself. And then share your story, your story of how maybe you were a skeptic. How, share a story of how you were lost and you got found. And the second practice for us today is to join what God is already doing in the world. Back to our initial question. We often want a Google Maps God. We want a God who tells us the plan. What is your plan for me? And I think that's really the wrong question. Instead of trying to identify step by step what we should be doing each day, we should be looking for where God is already working. We should be looking for what God's plan of reconciliation is between people and between people and God. This is God's plan for your life, to join him, to join the kingdom work that God is already doing. And, and when you have that, that, that kingdom perspective, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what you're gonna find is even in trials, even in suffering, even for Paul, in prison, he's not gonna be shaken. He's not going to be wondering, oh no, did I do something wrong? Where is God in this moment? He's going to say, where can I make an impact for the kingdom? Right here, right now, in my present situation. If you open your eyes, if you have the cover, unveil your eyes, you're going to see those powerful things. So think about, what are the gifts of grace that God has given you? What are the experiences? Where has God positioned you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family? What are, what are the gifts of grace that God has given you as a steward, as a household manager within the household of faith? And then find where those things fit into God's kingdom. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.